Hello, I'm Alan Higgins, and you are listening to the Design Talk podcast. The following recording is a cross-pod release with The Blind Spot, a podcast created by Tina Lowe, Accessibility Officer at University College Dublin, Ireland. This episode was recorded on the 24th of January, 2022. Welcome to The Blind Spot. I'm your host, Tina Lowe. This podcast looks to show everyone about making Ireland accessible for all. Today's guests are Molly Greeno, Rory Power and Aoife Bracken from UCD's Students' Union. So we'll start with uh, Aoife. Uh, thanks so much, Aoife, for coming in today. And can you tell us about yourself and what role you have in UCD's Students' Union? Yeah, so I'm the Education Officer this year, which means I'm in charge of primarily undergraduate academic affairs. I sit on most of the quite a few of the boards and committees and working groups in the university related to academic affairs and I am over constitutionally over access and the issue of access and accessibility to the to the university. Okay. And what did you do before you you've been I just graduated there in September for a Bachelor of Arts uh, International in Politics and International Relations and hoping to go into public policy in the future. Oh, very good. And are you interested in, say, the political side of life? Or? Uh, quite. <laughs> are you? Really? Four, four, years, four years of a degree kind of would have to be. Well, no, that's interesting. And what, what would your, can I ask you, what would your party or what area would you be looking at into if you were going to join a party? Um, I'm actually I've never joined a party particularly because I just can't quite decide so okay. I like between the few I am quite interested academically in the idea of lobbying and how it's a, a political tool so that's where I'm really interested very good very good very interesting and would you consider maybe working in the EU commission or something like that yeah it's pretty much the goal oh very good <laughs> I, very good I'm trying to register to French lessons now to see if I can oh, actually right. and do would, it so you could do a stage yeah, pretty yeah. much. Is that what, yeah, very good. It's very interesting. And to, we also have today, we're delighted to have Molly Greeno, who's all the way from Massachusetts. Is that yep, right? Yep, yep. South of Austin. Very good. And can you tell us about yourself and the role you have in the Students' Union? Yeah, sure. So this year I'm the welfare officer. So within the union, I'd be sort of the first point of contact for any students struggling with a sensitive thing so whether that's finances um finances um support on like mental health resources um sexual assaults anything like that I would be the first point of contact within the union so I sort of provide peer-to-peer support and then advise students of the different supports on a UCD level and kind of point them in the right direction whether it be linking them in with the counselling service or getting them in touch with their student advisor. And then I would sit on a lot of boards and committees as well, like IFA. Um, and then I guess for a bit about myself, I recently graduated from Law with Social Justice in UCD. Um, and I'm also hoping for a career in public policy. Very so, good. So you did so the degree, which is, is that a new, a relatively new one with social justice? Um, yeah, I think so. it's been... I was around one of like the second or third years of it, so right. it's new enough. Yeah. So it was a. I did equality studies years ago in here in UCD, a master's in it. I think is it in any way connected? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. We would look at like issues of equality, yeah. um, inequality, a lot of um, sort of social supports and everything like that. It's pretty found it broad, which yeah. I liked because you could kind of pick pick yeah. and choose the different modules yeah. that were up your own alley, lots of like 
things on gender studies as well and things right. like that. Very good. So it's really interesting. And you, you're doing this job as welfare officer. Is it a year long? Yeah, yeah. Right? All okay. of our positions are um, one year long. So okay. it's June 15th to June 15th. Oh, and very good. if we very want good. another go at it, we have to ha- let democracy <laughs> take its course. Very good. Very good. And finally, we are also have today Rory Power, who is the UCD's president of the Students' Union. So I'm delighted to have you here today, Rory. Nice to meet you. And can you tell us about your role and a bit about yourself? And of course, yeah, thanks very much for having the three of us. We're delighted to be in. Um, so I suppose the, the president's role is predominantly you're the chief spokesperson for the union. Um, so we're a democratic organisation. We've got a council full of class reps who sets our kind of policies and things like that. But the president also has a role in kind of shaping the political direction of where the union goes nice. for the year. So you're pretty much dealing with most of the media engagement um, kind of at the you, you would work quite closely with the campaigns officer as well the, in terms of kind of organising any demonstrations or I suppose deciding how you want to interact both with the university with kind of government officials that kind of thing so that's mainly the, the role it's slightly more political than the other officers I was the welfare officer last year um, and I'm from Clarecastle in County Clare so um, not not as far off as Molly um, but and like can you Describe to me or tell me a bit more about, say, how say you were the welfare officer. So how did that kind of shape or mould your think, thoughts on when you became the president? Um, I, I had a roughly similar agenda uh, in both kind of spheres of it. The, the main issue I saw when I was kind of got involved with student activism at the Students' Union was uh, the issue with the mental health uh, services. Um, then last year's was housing would have been a huge issue for us as well and those those are kind of probably the two main issues I focus on in my role as president as well so there is, there is quite a lot of overlap between the positions but it's down to each individual president I suppose which which areas they will want to tack into like right. some in other universities would be big into their events side of it um, others would be focusing on kind of the education elements of it but those were kind of the, the I think we've fairly myself Daryl as well and, and Molly would all work quite closely on those those issues of, okay. of welfare bits. Very, yeah. good. Very good. So this podcast is all about universal accessibility and trying to create a cultural space where everyone is included. So we're, we're very, we have spoken to many people so far and they've included people in, say, access, a, access to transport, to sports, um, to the cultural life, to education. And so today, it's really interesting to have you three because you're all very, I would say, politically minded and you want to change the way we think through policy, which is always a very good step, I think. And it does help hugely when people not only say go out and kind of shout with their placards, <laughs> but also when they do the policy and the the lobbying. So on that note... Aoife, tell us, tell me about your how you lobby and what have been your favourite campaigns to date, or what are you really passionate about? Um, so within the union, generally, if we are lobbying, it would come from Rory as president or the president, and then whatever officer's role is relevant to it, they'd be kind of with it. A lot of its press releases, uh, letters. We will send letters to. Uh, particularly to Minister Harris as Minister for Higher Education, but also on different issues such as um, cases relating to direct provision. We've sent letters in the past about that. But 
the main aim of the university is obviously sort of internal sorry the main aim for the students union is sort of internal lobbying so we work with different units on campus such as access and the library uh, they're particularly the two that I would link in with mm. and you work with them um, so one of the things we actually did this year was we made a pre-budget report and I actually was in communication with Access about that on what they wanted to see us put in about part-time, learn- uh, part-time learners but also about kind of Susie and the laptop loan scheme and different things that they would like to see us highlight in the pre-budget support mm. sorry pre-budget submission right. that was kind of the major parts and do you so you would lobby internally different areas of the university and do you see change or do you see success or like how 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 you know how much lobbying would you have to do um and are do you feel as as the students union you're you're enabled to be more in, independent you know as I such you know Rory would probably be very good at chatting about this but i think one of the parts of it is it depends on the area So if it's an area in particular that you've got kind of people within management or the sort of upper levels of the university who have a keen interest in that or have noticed an issue, then obviously it's really easy to go to them and say, hey, we've noticed this too. Do you want to change it? Mm -hmm. But other times it is banging your head against a wall um, for a little bit. In the past, previous officers have really pushed the idea of lecture recordings as an accessibility tool and had major pushback from management. They said it wasn't worth it, that it, you know, it, it, we were an in-person university, why would you record mm. lectures, etc. And then, of course, when I went in this year and I said, no, we need to lobby for this, like the pandemic has shown us that we should have this, that it's a really, really good tool for everybody and for increasing accessibility. And then we got minimal pushback. We were told, yeah, actually... Yeah, because life has changed. Yeah, yeah. they were yeah. like, yeah, no, this is the route we want to go. Like, yeah. this is a good yeah. idea. And I was sitting there going, oh, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of changed so, my lobbying campaign. <laughs> yeah, well, no, that's really good. And the thing is, we'll go back to that in a minute because I, I, I want to focus it more... Uh, later on in the chat on how we'll talk about COVID-19 and the pandemic and how it has affected and changed our lives and for positive and negative reasons. So that's thanks very much, Aoife. Um, Molly, can I ask you, I was reading your, your, your bio and you've written in it, consent education. So what is that? I don't, I, I wasn't, I'm not familiar with that term. So could you explain to the listeners? What, what that is and how that impacts your role, is it? Or yeah, sure. You, yeah, thanks very much. Um, so consent education would basically just be giving kind of either a lecture, a talk about consent in like sexual relationships. So I would work quite closely with Active Consent, which are, um, they're a group based out of NUIG Galway. Um, and so essentially trying to embed consent in the UCD curriculum. In my dream world, I think it would be you step onto UCD campus when you're in first year and before you even receive your scarf, you receive a stern talking to that we we respect consent in UCD. It's important for sexual relationships and I think it's really important because we know how lackluster like the objective sex ed is here in primary schools and secondary schools I mean it's not much better in America where I'm from Mm. so if students aren't really getting that sort of education when they're younger it really should be the university's 
duty to kind of meet them as soon as they enter UCD and provide that right. education. Because uh, I was going to actually say to you, you kind preempted what I was going to say was, um, would you not think as well as this? That's a really good uh, pr- approach, and I think it's really, really. I I hope, especially that particular campaign. I really hope that will change the way people are. But I was going to actually ask you, did you think that consent education should be should begin in primary yeah I think it should start as young as young as possible I mean like I've I'm not like a parent of children but like I it's easy to have small conversations I think it's easier to have a lot of small conversations as people are growing up opposed to having one big the birds and the bees talk when you turn 13 (laughs) I think that lacks nuance and we should kind of start straying away from that because consent is very easy to understand you can would you like to put a jacket on would you the simple would you like a cup of tea it's practicing consent mm. I think in bringing mm. it into conversations mm. beyond consent or beyond um consent and sexual relationships yeah. and then br- bring that into secondary and then hopefully by the time people go to un- university that they've had some like it would be a whole change of kind of mindset yeah I think definitely. it is starting to change in Ireland but I know it is it has been a very slow thing and a different way of looking at life but hopefully that that particular aspect of your role I think is very good so how do you carry that out what's the practical way that you do in UCD how do you do your consent yeah do you give talks or um I suppose on it's on the docket to I'm trained to facilitate active consent workshops so um in the coming month I'd say in in February I'll be reaching out to say different societies and sports clubs and inviting them to come along to the talks if they're interested um, and then I suppose my my major role would be kind of using my positions on um, boards and committees to lobby for the university to step up and do the consent training. And do you do it with the students? Um, you know in big in the big groups or? Yeah see there's nothing going on on like a wide scale right yeah, now at yeah, this point in yeah, time. Yeah. There's um, I'm lobbying hard for it to be introduced at a program level for this coming academic year because they've been running this the past two years. They've run a pilot in the School of Law in like an introduction to legal skills module that all first year students take. And they also ran a pilot this year in um, the School of Nursing and Midwifery. So I'm kind of of the opinion it's gone well in both of those schools. Let's put a lot of manpower behind this for a couple of months and yeah. ensure that it's able to be a university-wide endeavor. Could it, could it be like a module? Yeah, there's yeah. been there have been talks on that as well. Yeah. It's the yeah. one thing that I will acknowledge is it's there. It is such a important education to receive, but for some people, it can be really triggering and maybe bring up past issues. So that's one line that's been kind of difficult to navigate. I think yeah. in my yeah. role because I had kind of stepped into the role all gung-ho like yeah. mandatory <laughs> consent for everyone and yeah. someone very yeah. very kindly explained to me um and mandatory and consent yeah. don't really go don't together re- yeah, exactly. yeah. so yeah. I've yeah. it's been a bit of a learning curve and trying to figure out how to um reshape my approach but I'm not ready to give up yet yeah. so no, I, I I understand that completely because um in my own say personal approach on on life I lost my sight in my late 20s and like that I I've I became, and still am probably, gung-ho <laughs> about trying to change the way people are towards people who are different, you know. Yeah. 
And yeah, it's sometimes, and like I'd be the same. I'm like, why can't we do whatever? But I think you have to kind of get a balance sometimes, even though you've got a great idea. But I I think the one thing is you never lose is your passion, you know, about, about ideas. And uh, coming to you, Rory, on your passion, which is, and again is a hugely, really big area and very, very um, pertinent at the moment, especially the mental health awareness. So can you talk to us about your what you do on that and, and how that has, say, been just, you know, in, uh, given to all the other parts of UCD, you know, in the what campaigns and... Sure, yeah, yeah. Kind of course. Um, so I suppose it, it's something that really does come under the remit of the welfare role. And when I was in the position last year, we would have done a number of kind of workshops throughout COVID on, um, I suppose... Uh, uh, what you call it, compassion-focused therapy and things like that. So we got so in... So just how compassion-focused therapy, now tell us what that is. So we partnered with an external organisation who came in to... Be, it's basically, it's an offshoot of cognitive behavioural therapy. Right. Um. So it's a, I suppose, uh, oh jeez, I'm going to do a, a, a ham-fisted job of explaining this now. But no, no, it's, no it's just, just to explain to, to the listeners in... in yeah, yeah. For me as well, because I, I never heard that, and that's, I, I love to learn. So I suppose it, it's it's very linked to the concept of cognitive behavioural therapy and you're looking at your, your internal thought processes, you're looking at how that feeds into your kind of day-to-day habits and behaviours and how that, that kind of interconnection works and that's what a CBT therapists would focus on an awful lot. With compassion-focused therapy, it's similar to that but they kind of take an approach more so of kind of uh, I suppose taking a step back, assessing where you are at that moment in time nice. and maybe, I suppose, it, looking at kind of some of the precipitating factors that led into behaviour patterns yeah. as yeah. opposed to that very kind yeah. of adversarial, here's the thought, here's the behaviour, right. you must change so, one so, or the other. Yeah, so it's kind of looking at your behaviour, isn't it? Uh, to a large extent, to, yeah. yeah, but yeah. It, it's meant to kind of take the, I suppose, the it's meant yeah. to be a less harsh approach. Yeah. Uh, to yeah. CBT can be, like, it, it's fantastic. I, I've done CBT myself, it's great. It can sometimes be... I suppose maybe an oversimplified, uh, particularly when you've got an environmental stressor that's that's causing some of the problematic behaviours. CFT is maybe takes it a step further to to take that into account. Right, very good. And so, what are so? It sounds really interesting. So, how how do you do? People participate. Is it a course you provide, or how how? Does we that did work? a number of workshops last year. Now we right. did this year. For for example, Molly is partners with the Student Counselling Service, and she can talk to, to that in more more detail. But um. Some of our work is direct kind of providing of, of services or advice, infographics. We found a lot of the time that last year people didn't want to do these online. They were kind of burnt out from Zoom as it was. Mm-hmm. So we've kind of tried to shift the the focus we've had in a political direction. Um, so we would, par- we would work quite well with a lot of the support units in UCD. We've got quite good relationships with them. But equally, we have seats on the UCD Governing Authority and a lot of the internal boards and committees where we're in a, they're in a position to push for increased investment in supports, building up the uh, recruitment and retention in the support services. Oh, that's kind of part of... That's where my role might differ from the, the casework officers is that you're there to kind of push the political direction, whereas yeah. Molly does yeah. all the heavy lifting on the support provision. And, like, would you have... Like, say, in your day-to-day work in the Students' Union, do you have a lot of people with mental health difficulties? Uh, yeah, again, the welfare officer would be the first point okay, of contact so for all that, but there would be, uh, yeah, there's quite a, last year certainly we would have had an awful lot of people coming in. That on housing, housing was the major uh, issue last year, particularly with people losing deposits because they'd, they'd booked accommodation, they no longer need it. Um, so they're definitely the two biggest issues that we would right. have had. So it may be, Aoife, could, uh, your, would you be another passion of yours, housing? Um, through the SU, yeah, but it wouldn't have been, 
I was very aware of it. I was extremely lucky in my background that it didn't. Um, I didn't have any issues with housing. I did have friends who had loads of issues. I just not nice landlords couldn't find anywhere living on couches, things like this. And you do see it a lot in the union because I know from Molly that a lot of the case where she gets it's either directly about housing or housing is a contributory factor to it. And she works quite closely with Aoife, who, another Aoife in the office, who's our accommodation support officer, okay. whose role is to assist Molly on these issues. And, and how how can, like, say, Molly, how, how do you think that, um, say, the ho- I know housing is a huge thing for everyone in Ireland and it's just, you know, it's more and more expensive every year and rent is harder and it's an awful lot of injustices about it and but how how would you tackle that if you were say the minister for housing Ooh, if i was the minister <laughs> for housing for yeah. one day um i think what really needs to be done is a widespread investment in cost rental model style of um accommodation which is essentially where you wouldn't all of the costs say for the rent and everything would only be to cover say the upkeep the maintenance the the mortgage you wouldn't be making any excess profit unlike the current UCD accommodation so um Rory's done a lot of work on that um especially as well he's um lobbied Minister Harris um to not give universities any more um funding for um student accommodation if it isn't going directly for cost rental because we just in our view as a union we think it's there's no better word except ridiculous the kind of lavish purpose-built student accommodation that's being built like the new UCD village it's lovely to look at but I wouldn't want to be paying rent for that and I don't think I think the vast majority of students are now effectively being locked out of higher education. And Molly can you explain to me the term cost rental do you mean it's what what does that mean is that like it's a it's set at a cap yeah, essentially, right. it's okay. um, it's really popular in Austria. It's like okay. sometimes referred to as the Vienna model. Right. So essentially, it would go like UCD. Say, well, use UCD as an example because I love love circling it back to them when I can. Um, so essentially, UCD would take out a mortgage. They would do all their financial projection projections or whatever. Say, we want to pay off this mortgage over a thirty year time period. Mm-hmm. Then you look at the what are the maintenance costs that we'll need um, people from estates in coming to fix up things. You figure we set our amount this side budget per year. And then essentially when you generate, when you add all of that up and divide it by however long you need to pay your mortgage by, I'm not explaining this very eloquently, you essentially, you would be charging people the absolute bare minimum to just cover those costs exclusively. But the the students' rent, they don't become owners. No, no. no. It's a a way of being able to afford rent. Yeah, it's a more affordable form of um, housing. It's really popular. Okay, and then I just, I haven't had the... Uh, chance yes but I think it's tomorrow actually that we're going to go and view the new most recently built accessible accom- or accommodation on campus and just from my perspective just to just many well it's not that long ago in in um, 1997 to 2000 I lived in Belgrove campus uh, the residence so it's still there it's <laughs> it's not the original Marvel is the original and when we lived there then it was um, quite accessible, but life, you know, this this podcast and, and I work in accessibility, you know, 
the and it's just it's interesting because I, when I go to visit say to, to look at the buildings I'm looking at it from the accessibility aspect you know the the actual the way the rooms are built and the the utilities and the amazing accessibility and a lot of those newer builds compared to what was built then because that was obviously accessibility has changed hugely in the last 20 years I'd say especially like there's building regulations are much different there's a very high standard and some of these buildings that when I go into them I'm going oh my god that is amazing because <laughs> I'm looking at it from the perspective of the the height of the sink or the kitchen is has a you know a space under for a person using a wheelchair or blind use whatever you know do you know what I'm saying that it's it's that's the perspective I'd be looking at but I do understand that affordability wise things have become very um challenging I'd say yeah would you agree with me yeah 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 but but from the perspective of accessibility the changes in my time here say since working in this job since 2010 it really has improved as in you can now live in a building in UCD if you have any sort of a disability without as much difficulty as you would have had up till quite recently so I suppose that's so I think if we could I I take your point and I think if we could get our affordability that's a great suggestion the Vienna model for something like that 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 you know you'd then be able to live on a campus that is accessible which is amazing and that's really what you know you you can talk to me about this Aoife like you say that your role as well as doing your campaigns and lobbying you're very interested in the accessibility part so would you agree with me that there's been a lot of good changes yeah no, on the campus physical yeah. as well yeah, I yeah. lived in I lived in Belgrove in first year as well, Did and you? it's <laughs> I lived in one of the ones that had a stairs up to it, no ramp yeah. or anything, and yeah. even up the, the top floor. I was second floor, but even like the because yeah. no elevators in those ones, no. and there's no. even the size of the corridors and the rooms are tiny. Yeah. Um. So it is like we would look at that and we would see like huge changes, and we would say like the the use UCD going in. And building accommodation that's as accessible as possible is obviously to be commended, but that that needs to go hand in hand with ensuring that it's affordable to yeah. students. Because is it really a truly accessible campus if students are breaking their back, their families are breaking their back in order yeah. to afford rent, or they can't even come to Dublin? Yeah. Because if they need to live on campus because it's the place with the most accessible buildings. Mm but they can't afford the rent, where do, they, where do they go then? What are they supposed to do? Are they just left out of UCD then? So that's where we would we would yeah. come at it from. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, that's a very good point. And I was going to move on to the whole um, change as well in the campus, which is very positive change in, in the last year, few years would be the whole multi-ethnicity, you know, the whole, there's huge changes in, we have so many different nationalities now, which is really good. So, what you know, talk to me about that, Rory. Like, are there is that one of the ther- the areas that you would look at in the students' union? You know, the kind of the different nationalities and cultures. Like, it's I think it's created a really nice change in in the in on the campus. So, 
Yeah, absolutely. We have a, um, a diversity and inclusion campaign coordinator. Her name is uh, Paula Martinez, and uh, she she's this is her second year now in the role, and she's done a fantastic job. And she's organising some events at the moment, for example, on decolonising curricula, and that's something that a lot of people within uh, the university have been focusing on. Um, so she has um, she's put kind of t- she would be the one in charge of putting together the the program of events in that mm. in that respect throughout the year. But uh, in all honesty, I think that's something the union maybe falls a bit short on. Um, we were a bit pasty um, in terms of the representation. We've had very few uh, sabbatical officers who weren't white Irish uh, mm-hmm. for the last number of years. So that's something we, we probably should be doing better on. We we do quite well in terms of representation for people from LGBTQ plus backgrounds. Um, we have had sabbatical officers and, and class reps who've, who've had various uh, disabilities. But um, in terms of, I suppose, creating a, a, a multi ethnic culture within the yeah, union we're yeah. improving a lot of our class reps are from diverse backgrounds but uh, there's definitely a long way to go on that but um it that's it is very positive the one i suppose you know when you're taking into account the different statistics for underrepresented groups in ucd and you're looking at people from different nationalities mm-hmm. that's great but uh, when you're talking about people from international uh, student perspectives there's often also the feeling that these students are, are used as cash cows because they pay pay the, <laughs> the higher level of fees um, so that's something kind of we don't just want to take the box of having X, Y, and Z number of students. If they, you know we're providing education as a public good here, yeah. we should be trying to re- reduce the cost burden on these students when they're coming over. And unfortunately, they're paying extortion fees even compared to the the comparatively very high ones Irish students would be paying. Mm, but then you could say maybe no. I'm not, correct me if I'm wrong, and I could be very wrong. But I would have. I know when I was living in the campus in my third year, um, I had two of my. Um, Roommates were Norwegian and they were studying medicine and they had both told me that the system in Norway would be that you take out a huge loan because the fees would be much higher but you pay it back over a lifetime. And that's how it works, for example, in their country and that's why they came to Ireland. So even though the fees are massively huge... They, I'm, I could be wrong now. Can someone come in on this? Any Americans? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Can you talk to me about this? Because I know... I think that a lot of people have told me that now I could be wrong. I could yeah, be very wrong. I, so. I can't comment on Norway, but I certainly can comment about the commercialization of like higher education in um, the US. And that's um, one of the main reasons why I decided to come to Ireland was just because um, I would have been paying upwards of 70,000 US dollars a year wow. at the university I was going to go to in the US. So it's kind of like, hmm, and I could do that or I could move to how, Ireland. How does that work? Like, say, explain to me how, if you, how many years do you go to, say, if you were going to go to that university? It would have been four years, right. like and, an undergrad. And, um, and how do American students pay? Um, sometimes like, If they stay in, in, yeah. and go to those universities. Like. Yeah, sometimes through scholarships, mostly through taking out loans. And right. um, oftentimes you have to take out private loans um, because the federal loans wouldn't be enough to cover the tuition. So mm. how it basically would have ended up is me being in horrible debt till like I'm in my mid-60s. Wow. Um, and is that how a lot of people would, would do it? Like who go to university? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, I don't know... I'm very lucky compared to all my friends at home. Like I still had to, I think it's funny because I still had to take out a few loans to cover UCD's international student um, uh, fees. But um, in comparison to any of my friends from home, they all have some loans to pay back. Um, right. So it's a different way and yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really commercialized and privatized. In, a, in the States? Yeah, in the States. It's right. 
I see similarities here though. It's a, it's a business model. Yeah. yeah. But I think it, it's important as well, like you have the you, the examples of what happens when education goes too far down that trajectory. And we've had, I mean, the, our own university presidents, you know, going in front of the Joint Oireachtas Committee saying, you know, an Australian style loan scheme might be the way to go forward. But we shouldn't be looking for the bare minimum. We can also look to countries like Germany, like Scotland, that have universalised fees. They've made, uh, you know, education, tertiary education completely free at the point of access. And they've funded it through a progressive tax model. So, it's not like we're that's, asking yeah. for something yeah. very unreasonable. This is a reality in most that, that's European countries. And that's a really good way of doing it. It's it's like, um, say, uh, some of the countries in Europe, they they have really good, like you were saying, like the cost rental system. Because like, some of the countries say, I like I, I lived abroad years ago in Spain and it was a totally different setup the way people rented accommodation or lived. Like a lot of families would live in rented housing for their lifetime because it was a cost rental system and it was um very well run and very well uh like obey you know there was very there had to be strict rules and so that was uh, the way they live you know not a lot of people would buy housing but they'd rent but it was done in a very kind of proper way you know well planned out and carefully monitored and not exorbitant either but you know I think things change over time but that's a very good suggestion Rory about the uh, fee system that we sh- we can look to other countries for models of uh, financing yeah, yeah I, I, that's something that could be happening in the next number of weeks yeah. so that's that really good like that's yeah. a great idea yeah and that's the kind of thing that though. is great to have that's why I love having <laughs> Three students union people who know loads. <laughs> well, also have loads. good opinions. <laughs> you know, you're 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 telling me lots now that I I'm learning, which is brilliant. Which is why you know this is a, it's a great way to um find out you know how, and what it's like to like. Do any of you live in the accommodation here in UCD? Uh, we're not allowed. <laughs> we oh, wouldn't be really? able to afford really? it either. Yeah. Yes. Of course. No. Uh, well, we're no longer. I, I lived in first and second year on campus, but I technically have graduated and as oh, a sabbatical right. oh, officer, you're in this, okay. you're in right. this weird in-between of not quite a student, not quite a yeah. staff, oh, they're not good. really sure. That's interesting. But I didn't know that. So that's, okay, so you lived in Belgrove in first and second year. I lived in Belgrove in first year and then I got into Roebuck a few weeks after the semester, had uh, Roebuck Halls. Yeah. a few weeks after the semester had started in second year because I had nowhere else to live. And did you enjoy it? Yeah, it was nice. Obviously, Robocalls Calls was slightly nicer than Belgrove, yeah, bigger but, room, but suite. Was it good social life? Yeah, yeah I got absolutely. very lucky. I I got on really, really well with my housemates in first year. I'm still mm. friendly with them. Mm. I and the same in second year. So I now compared to some of my friends that didn't get on with their housemates, I had you had a great time. I, I did a really easy time with it. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> and did you cook loads of healthy food and all that? Oh, was my it the stereotype of student living? Oh, I was I was a stereotype in the fact that I went home every weekend to work. And my yeah. mommy sent me up with frozen meals, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I tried, yeah. but they were mostly re- mostly frozen meals for my mom. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I did the same, and I was a mature student, so I used to go home every weekend, and and I, I used to tell everyone I was a Monday to Thursday vegetarian because <laughs> <laughs> she was a great cook, yeah. and I I washed the dishes. It was a great deal, and then I went home on a Friday and ate meat for three days. So, but it was. <laughs> So, so moving on, I want to ask you first before we go into the just a discussion on COVID, just to talk to me about the social events and the social life, because I know it's changed a lot in the last two years. But hopefully, when we get out of the pandemic and 
learn to kind of adapt to living and go back to being out having much more freedom. Um, what what social events and what are the particular things that you really like or to students to get involved in and to have fun? Yeah, so we we have a, a dedicated entertainment officer. Um, her job for the last year has been a bit septic. Um, she has been, you know, it, it, there's an awful lot of constraints in terms of the public health uh, situation, particularly last year. Did, she did try to run a number of, of events last year online. We did a, a collaboration between a number of students' unions. Uh, we got some good artists in. For, it was a music. It was a concert, like with Soleil and a few other people. And uh, again, people not really into the whole online event situation so hopefully now when things are reopening we'll be able to push it a small bit but we did do a comedy night for example recently we had uh, Alison Spittle in and uh, Kevin McGahern um, so there's a few like I suppose uh, we, we work uh, quite well with the UCD DJ collective um, Sarah's done a few workshops with them so we've been focusing on small scale events we'll try to build up capacity now as we're we're suddenly being allowed to us that Tony Holland's declared COVID's over COVID's over but um, <laughs> in one that's, day yeah that's it, we're finished it's cancelled but um, um, yeah it's very good and you know when say in relation to students with disabilities um, if you're going to events or like who would be responsible for do, do you check the venues beforehand because sometimes not all venues are accessible or how does that work? Um, I suppose this year hasn't been as as big as a challenge in that we've had a lot, a lot of our events on campus. So, for example, if we're using the we, for the comedy gig, we use the UCD Student Centre, we use the Astro Hall, and there was you know that that would have been considered an accessible event. So it comes into the planning, but we would have had previously a dedicated events manager, uh, so that would have been part of part of her role. But um, that role now we've to, we've kind of changed it slightly. So going out of it, that that will have to be a continual focus. But it hasn't been an issue because we focus on small scale events on campus for right. adapted rooms. Okay. And um, do you think that in some ways that's been a positive thing? In the Does sense that yeah. everyone can go and there isn't, you know, the way sometimes f- some venues in town might be fantastic, you know, but they're not very accessible. So yeah. do you think it's been good in, you know, in some ways? Even in a, yeah. in terms of like some of our less social events. Yeah. Yeah. We, we run a council every two weeks um, just for um, uh, people given their kind of uh, policy uh, directions to the union or whatever, that would have always been done in person, but we adapted it to a hybrid model for COVID. That's the kind of thing that we think we can probably adapt going forward long term. And that's, we'll be, uh, I know we Aoife touched on the uh, lecture recordings earlier on. There's a lot of things that were put in place because of COVID that maybe should have been done beforehand. We'll be fighting quite hard to keep them in place going forward because it has big impacts for people who even just have long commutes, but also those who have mobility issues yeah, can't come in yeah. the whole time. So that that's a lo- lovely way to move into our, the topic of the COVID pandemic. And uh, could you talk to us all, the three of you, just tell me what your own personal experiences and how you think the way we've had to change. And for the last two years, um, you know, use the hybrid model of online and attending lectures and how exams have been carried out. And do you think even though it's been very difficult, do you think there are some positives to come from this? Or would you prefer to go back to the full-time, face-to-face, everybody always in the, you know, in the lecture space? Or do you think there's any, like, is, is hybrid, new kind of hybrid way of learning and living, is that a good thing? So a work-life balance. Um, that's probably students. me, yep. education. Yep. But, um, I so I did my final year completely online. I was on Erasmus when uh, the pandemic hit and I moved home. 
So I will say the one thing that I was really, really thankful for the entire way through my final year was the library was still open and accessible to students. Um, I work quite closely with the library and I know it's something they were really concerned about and worked really hard on during the pandemic was to ensure that they were always as open and as accessible as possible. Students who you know didn't have access to laptops or a suitable study space or Wi-Fi and making sure that they had somewhere they could go if they needed help. And so that was kind of my sort of saving grace in final year. I will say I really struggled with the totally at home thing. I was lucky enough that I lived in Dublin close to the college. We're seeing it now. I'm getting, I get a lot of students kind of contacting me, especially for different accessibility reasons, really can't come in. They've got family who are high risk. They have children, um, they're disabled or they're ill themselves and they're just really struggling and they're emailing me because their module coordinator is you know refusing to record or live stream or even in some cases put any materials online and they're really panicking and they contact me and you know I will always say the first thing to do if a student is worried is contact their school and see if their school can do something for them but it is something we're seeing lots are very good I will give a lot of credit to quite a few to nearly all the module coordinators in the university as they I think really took on board the idea of accessibility and how they can use live streaming technology, even if it took some of them learning how to use technology in order to do it. And that really helped. And I think it makes students feel appreciate it feel appreciated and that they're a valuable and valid part of the university structure if they're being listened to and their their attendance is promoted essentially in that case where they know that they're their presence is valued, but that if they can't come, they're still worthy they of still, learning. Yes, yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, it's true. So some pe- most people have embraced this new way. Yeah, I but think... But some people are still kind of dragging their heels. Yeah. yeah, that was when I first spoke to the registrar about the issue of kind of, continu- you know, during the summer when we weren't really sure how the first trimester was going to look or would we be fully back, would we be partially back? And... Like even the registrar admitted that look, there was going to be people in the university who weren't keen on this idea for a multitude of reasons, um, but that the university was coming out of COVID was keen to view this was keen to look at lecture recording and live streaming as a tool for accessibility. And I know Rory sits on the widening participation committee, and it's been something they've been very focused on as a tool for accessibility and widening participation within UCD. And so um, I think I think even a lot of lecturers and module coordinators themselves have realized that live streaming opens up a whole and this, you know, hybrid sort of and a hybrid classes and even the push towards less formal terminal examinations at the end of the semester and more continuous assessment, open book, 24 hour, 48 hour assessments makes their life easier as well to an extent. So there have there will you all would you all agree that there's been some positive aspects of oh, the two years? Yeah. yeah, yourself, Molly. Yeah, definitely, I'd agree, and I think I know no one would want to wish like that pandemic were to happen again. But I think we have to take those lessons that we've learned over the past two years and move forward. I don't think, obviously, there's been so many downsides, but we've learned a lot about what we value as a society as well, and like human interaction, everything with accessibility we've learned how to do 
like how to make things accessible now so let's keep it up let's keep promoting it and um I don't know yeah I think there's all this like chat about like the new normal and stuff but we really do have a role in crafting what that looks like we should make sure accessibility whether it's at a university level or anywhere is taken forward very good and last word on that Rory this year has been great because we've been in the office like I got blessed with a very nice team but last year it was quite difficult. Yeah, like it's it's you're you're dealing with relatively intensive issues coming forward, particularly in the casework roles, and you kind of didn't have that network of support around you. Whereas there's a lot of sound people around UCD being back on campus is going to have a big positive impact, I think, on anyone working within a support unit. I'd agree with a lot of what's been said on the the lecture recording, certainly, but I think it also maybe showed the the I suppose capacity of the state to respond very quickly to to key issues that come up. So. I, I think one of the, the phrases I saw earlier on was everyone's a socialist in a crisis in that, you know, when it comes to um, the provision of, of housing and things like that during COVID, when people didn't want, uh, you know, uh, tenants to be stuck moving from place to place because of disease control, we brought in a rent freeze and it was done on emergency grounds. Those are kind of practical measures that we think should be taken forward. Um, it was the same with increasing hospital capacity. We looked very quickly to to utilising the, uh, the power of the private sector and the state expanding their reach there. Um, equally, you know, there's going to be huge issues coming out of COVID with access to mental health supports, increased demand for services and, and for, um, I suppose, elective surgeries that have been delayed. So there's a need for the state to continue to play a leading role in it. It shouldn't stop because COVID's gone. So there's definitely an awful lot of positives we can we can draw from and bring forward. Very good. It's... It's been um, a, a real pleasure today to talk to three people who are, I'd say, three either, I'd say definitely politician. Rory, yeah, I can see you in the future, for sure. Oh, Lovely thing to say, thanks. For, for sure, not for sure. to say it. It's, well, that's okay, that's you know, lucky. like, yeah. it's, it's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, as I say, it was fantastic talking to the three of you today. Thank you so much for telling me so much and giving me great um information and I think um, also uh, a lot of positive future kind of thoughts and you know it's great to see that our potential uh, politicians and policy makers of the future yeah it's it's brilliant and so I'm going to um, finish today by asking you um, the question that we ask everybody so since the show is called the blind spot I'm going to ask the three of you what is your blind spot? So I'm going to start with Molly. Oh, geez. On the <laughs> spot, I'd say my blind spot is... Huh, thinking on my feet. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, putting your feet in it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Okay. Eva. I'm, I think I might have to steal the the par- the driving analogy, but my car park in my uh, in my own in under where I live, I'm chronic with it. It's too tiny, and my car is just slightly too big for it. Right. So okay, and Rory, uh, panicking. I I think the my biggest blind spot is when a situation comes up and it's kind of a a big massive challenge. My first response is to kind of freak out a small bit. So I struggle in taking the step back and assessing the situation a small bit. So okay. a very panicky, edgy person. If I'm, you can you know, my hands to be shaken quite frequent. So right. yeah. okay, okay, very good. Well, as I say, thank you so much again. It was a real pleasure to meet you. Thank you very Thanks much, Thank you very much. Thank you. Very good. Thank Thanks for listening to The Blind Spot. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. Until next time on The Blind Spot.
The Blindspot podcast was funded under the University for All Faculty Partner Program and developed with the support of the UCD College of Business and UCD Access and Lifelong Learning.